You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about bookstores, the books inside them, and book culture. I'm your host, Vic Singh. Please subscribe to Book Stories on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to shows. And thanks for helping us spread the word. This is a conversation I had with Susan Jakes, author of the book Caesar of Paris, which is a sweeping exploration of a side of Napoleon Bonaparte few know much about. I've always been fascinated by the subject, but this portrait of the man gave a context of the historical record that I hadn't really experienced before. We had a really great chat, so here it is, my conversation with Susan Jakes. Hi, I'm Susan Jakes, author of The Caesar of Paris. You're listening to Book Stories. Susan, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. First of all, this is a sweeping book with immense detail, uh, worthy of the subject. Um, What made you decide to write about Napoleon in 2018? I had written a book about Catherine the Great called The Empress of Art, and I was focused on her a passion for art and architecture. And one of the interesting aspects of that book was her founding the Hermitage Museum. And in the course of doing the book, I read about um, an extraordinary addition to the Hermitage, which was um, arranged by her beloved grandson, Alexander I. Uh, and he wound up buying the art collection of Napoleon's first wife, Josephine. Josephine also gifted Alexander a beautiful antique cameo that's really considered one of the masterpieces of the Hermitage. And uh, that really led me to the history of the stolen art at the Louvre and the Napoleon's fascination with antiquity. And as I dug further into the story, it became absolutely irresistible, and I got hooked completely. What's your background? I'm a, a history major uh, by training, and uh, and I also have a master's in business. Um, and I have been a uh, nonfiction article uh, journalist uh, for years and, uh, before I became um, an author. I read that you're a docent at the Getty. What, is I, that, what does that entail? I am. Um, I've been a docent at the Getty for five years, and I give gallery tours to visitors, which... Uh, I really enjoy, and um, it's something that I look forward to. I uh, do that on the weekends. Talk about art appropriation. So it goes as far back as Constantine. Why and how did it become in vogue, if that makes any sense? Right. So you're exactly right. So this idea of war spoils um, goes back really before the Romans, but the Romans really uh, institutionalized the concept of war spoils. So when the Roman generals and later the Roman Caesars were victorious over an enemy, they would come back to Rome uh, and bringing all of the the treasures of uh, whoever they conquered. And uh, there was the highest honor that you can achieve achieve was called the triumph. And the Roman Senate would award this to victorious generals and Caesars. And the triumphator, uh, like Julius Caesar, would come back after the Gallic Wars um, with all the booty. And that would be paraded. He would ride a a chariot through the streets and all of the stolen treasures uh, would be paraded through the streets of Rome. Napoleon, it turns out, actually very much (laughs) institutionalized a, a massive art theft. So wherever 
wherever Napoleon had conquered, he would select the finest artworks, uh, pack them up and bring them back to Paris and install them in the Louvre Museum, which he would rename the Musée Napoleon. So so what, did he do anything else when he appropriated the art? Did he use it to enrich himself in any way? Or was it mostly just for displaying Paris as the, you know, the greatest city on earth. Right, exactly. So this really was Napoleon's endgame. And he even says he's on his way to invade Egypt before he sees power. He's a young general. And he said, if I were master of Paris, I would make Paris the most beautiful city in the world. He talks about Paris as the... um, as the capital of the universe. And of course, he does become master of France. And his idea is to turn Paris into the new Rome. So for uh, millennia, Rome had been the center of, of culture, and first as a republic, then as a very powerful empire, um, and then as the center of Catholicism. And artists had always flocked, and writers had flocked to Rome to study, and France had had a long love affair. Uh, Louis XIV started the Academy, uh, the French Academy in Rome, so that France's best uh, painters and sculptors could study the, the ancient Roman uh, sculptures and architecture. So, uh, Napoleon, to answer your question, Napoleon really wanted, by bringing all this art to the Louvre, he wanted to make Paris the new Rome. And indeed, the Louvre became the finest museum in the world. He was successful. And yes, at the same time, he he did take certain items, like this beautiful antique cameo that he was from the Vatican, stolen by the French soldiers from the Vatican, which he gifted to Josephine, his first wife, and she ultimately gave that to Alexander I, and it's now in the Hermitage. But then his main purpose was to um, make Paris uh, the new Rome. How did the Louvre come to be, and what was Napoleon's role in establishing it? It didn't exist before him, right? The Louvre Museum uh, formerly was the Royal uh, Palace uh, of France. It has a long uh, history. And uh, during the French Revolution, the decision was made to turn the Louvre, this former Royal Palace, into the National Museum. And, of course, the Royal Art Collections were nationalized, as they were during the Russian Revolution. So art belonging to the French monarchs became uh, the art of the people of France. France. But Napoleon, uh, of course, he goes beyond that and he enriches it with all this looted art from across Europe. And um, he starts that very early on. In fact, the treaties that he would sign, he demanded very specific artworks. Really, the masterpieces of Europe were demanded as part of peace treaties. And so uh, he was out for the very best. And uh, if you look at early on, the Treaty of Tolentino, uh, the Pope Pius VI was forced to cede 100 of the very finest antiquities and paintings from Rome and from the Vatican uh, to Napoleon. And so that was just the beginning, and he really um, continues that throughout the next 15 years. You mentioned Egypt a few minutes ago. After looting Rome, he turned his sights to Egypt. What was the calculus there? It's very fascinating. Uh, he, he made his mark in northern Italy. He had a series of stunning victories against the Austrians, and he caught all the Europeans by surprise. And then he comes back and he says that uh, Europe holds no more um, places that all the great men of antiquity went east. And so he's really seeing himself in the um, following in the footsteps of figures like Alexander the Great and Octavian, who becomes Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, who, of course, 
follows Cleopatra and Mark Anthony back to Egypt and defeats them and makes Egypt part of the Roman Empire. So Napoleon sets out. He gets approval from the directory regime. This is after the revolution, of course. And he takes along something like 34,000 soldiers on this top-secret mission. He sails off. He doesn't tell them where they're going. And he, um, the plan is to the pretense of his plan was to liberate the people of Egypt, but really he was trying to get at the British, which were France's arch enemy, and stop their uh, trade with India. So Egypt was a gateway to India. And of course, this is a complete disaster militarily. Um, he gets his fleet gets destroyed by the British Admiral Horatio Nelson right away in Alexandria Bay. So he's basically marooned with his soldiers in Egypt. Um, and it's a, it's like a disaster, basically. And he will wind up going back. He leaves his army there and he goes back to France and he spins this defeat into this great cultural and intellectual uh, victory, which is fascinating. How was India a connection to, uh, why was Egypt the, sort of well, the gateway? Well, this was, um, this goes back to um, Alexander the Great and uh, who, you know, the Macedonian king who, yeah. who conquered the whole, what we call today the Middle East uh-huh. and proceeded through to India. So gotcha. this was part of the end game was to hurt Britain. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the British Navy was stronger than the French Navy and uh, it this didn't work out for Napoleon. Uh, so as I mentioned, he still manages to emerge from this defeat a hero. Uh-huh. He is really, he comes back to France and he is still a national hero. Uh, And it's really fascinating, and he goes on to really launch a new craze about Egypt, Egyptomania, you would call it, which the ancient Romans also did. When Augustus adds Egypt to the Roman Empire, uh, the the Romans went crazy about the Egyptian uh, monuments, the pyramids, the obelisks, the ancient civilization of Egypt, and Napoleon institutes a new phase of Egyptomania, including the whole science of Egyptology, you know, the the whole study of the ancient civilization of Egypt. Hmm. What was Napoleon's relationship with the Catholic Church and the Pope? What was his MO with that? Well, that was one of the biggest surprises in doing this book, that, you know, during the French Revolution, the church, the Catholic Church in France uh, was basically no more. And so uh, Napoleon understood that the church was important to the French people. And so one of his very first actions is to come to an agreement with the new pope, Pope Pius VII, a concordat, uh, which reestablished the church in France. That was very, very important. But from there, their relationship just went downhill because Napoleon uh, just assumed that Pius would be supportive of his expansion throughout Europe and Pius wanted to remain neutral. And so they were at loggerheads. Um, And so one of the big surprises was the resistance of Pius to Napoleon. And that culminates in his abduction. He was actually kidnapped from the Quirinal in Rome taken to Savona, put under house arrest, and later transferred to Fontainebleau, the um, the Chateau Fontainebleau. And when Napoleon is finally uh, 
defeated, he releases the Pope. So the Pope goes back to Rome a hero, but it, it, he was under house arrest for almost five years. So the question of Napoleon and the church, it's a very complicated one. He used the church uh, for political purposes, and he wanted to definitely control the church and the Pope, and it was somewhat unsuccessful for him um, because he did not expect um, Pius to put up a fight. Hmm. Fascinating. What was the intention behind uh, the Arc de Triomphe, as we talked about off mic, and how did it come to be? So this is fascinating. So Napoleon, when he defeats the Austrians at the Battle of Austerlitz in 1805, he tells his soldiers after this glorious uh, victory that um, you will return to Paris through triumphal arches. So as he comes back, he gets his architects to build two arches. The first is the Arc de Triomphe du Carousel by the Louvre. And at the time, it was to be a very grand entrance to the Tuileries Palace, which was a former royal palace that Napoleon moved into. And his architects, Percy and Fontaine, they actually uh, used as the model for that triumphal arch two ancient arches in Rome. And those were the arches of uh, Septimius Severus and the Arch of Constantine. And what distinguished about those arches. It's a large main arch flanked by two smaller arches, so basically three arches. And uh, what Percy and Fontaine did was they copied that, but they used materials, beautiful materials like a pink marble, highly decorated with bas-reliefs and uh, statues. And interestingly, the very top, they put the famous four bronze horses that were stolen from Venice, the bronze horses from St. Mark's Basilica in Venice that Napoleon's troops stole. So that topped this arch uh, along with a figure of Napoleon driving the quadriga. And in the end, Napoleon, when he saw this, he was disappointed. He thought it looked like a pavilion, not a triumphal arch. And so he commissioned a second arch, and that's the one that you referring to, the main Arc de Triomphe at the top of the Champs-Élysées. And that has been in the news because it's the really the the focus of the uh, yellow vest protests in Paris and Napoleon commissions this and it's based on another ancient roman arch and that is the arch of titus and it's a single arch one very large arch again decorated with various bas-reliefs and it was to commemorate the french revolution and the napoleonic wars give me an education in nomenclature so What did his eventual title of emperor actually mean? How is it different from his previous titles? And how does that title actually differ from that of king? Well, this is a great question. So if you recall, the French Revolution uh, was fought to get rid of the Bourbon kings of France. Uh, They were, you know, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette were guillotined. And there was instituted the French Republic. Uh, so it was really impossible for Napoleon to to assume the title of king because the country had just fought to get rid of the kings. Um, they were much despised. But uh, Napoleon had a great sense of admiration for the commanders of antiquity, for Alexander the Great. We talked about him in, in, in the Middle East and for Julius Caesar. And uh, his, as he, when he comes back from Egypt, he stages a coup and he uh, seizes power. He establishes a consulate, which is a Roman term. He replaced the directory regime, which 
followed the French Revolution with a consulate and himself as first consul. So he was, in effect, the uh, leader of France. That's, uh, that's in late 1799. And about four years later, in May of 1804, he proclaims the empire. Uh, and again, this is all very much inspired by the Roman Empire, the great, powerful Roman Empire. And uh, he takes the title of emperor of France, and France is, it's, this, is the, the new empire of France. And his idea is really to emulate the Roman Empire and basically uh, create a very large empire. And uh, he proceeds to wage battles with continental Europe to grow that empire to be the size of the great Roman Empire. Summarize his downfall. What happened and why? Well, that's a subject of many books, as you know. So he had grown the empire. He was at the height of his power and... He decides in uh, 1812 to invade Russia, and uh, that turns out to really be the beginning of the end for him. He uh, he invades Russia with an enormous army, the Grand Armée, which was about 650,000 soldiers, and he does not expect the Russians they, uh, to set fire to Moscow. So he's waiting in the Kremlin for the keys to the city. And um, instead of getting the keys to the city, the, the Moscow um, sets itself on fire. And he has to, to uh, uh, retreat. His men, um, it's the middle of winter, and so it's a complete disaster. He returns with only about 100,000 men. So it's decimated his army. He never really recovers from that. And also Spain also um, resisted. They didn't really accept the rule of, of France, uh, and so there was a resistance in Spain. So between Russia, the Russian failed Russian invasion and Spain, um, that's what really did him in. And then finally, the allies, allies um, united together to ultimately uh, defeat Napoleon. Napoleon said men are only as great as the monuments they leave behind. By that standard, how, how did Napoleon measure up? Right. So I, this is a fascinating question to me. So as I mentioned, he built the two Arc de Triomphes, the Arc de Triomphe du Carousel and the, Arc de, the main Arc de Triomphe by the Champs-Élysées. He also built the Vendôme Column, which is fascinating. It was based on Trajan's Column in Rome. Uh, he wanted to actually dismantle Trajan's Column, 1,100 tons in marble, and move it to Paris. Unfortunately, his advisors dissuaded him, and instead he built his own column based on Trajan's Column, which is towering. It's in the Vendôme, Place Vendôme in Paris, and it commemorates his victories at Austerlitz in bronze. The Trajan's Column was created in marble, and Napoleon's version is in bronze. But in terms of uh, his legacy, he does leave some very iconic monuments for Paris. And we talked about the Arc de Triomphe. Uh, we talked about uh, Vendôme Column. Uh, he also built the Madeleine Church, to the glory of his army, which is, uh, he, he built it to his army, and it was later turned into a church, and it was based on an ancient Roman temple in Nîmes, which is part of the Roman Empire. Southern France was part of Rome, so the prototype was this beautifully preserved temple called the Maison Carré. To answer your question, I think that he did leave an amazing legacy. I mean, some of the most iconic monuments in Paris were 
ordered by Napoleon. Um, and I should add that they have undergone transformations, and that's the interesting, uh, very interesting part of the French and monuments is that they have a long history of altering and toppling monuments. And just would like to add that after the Franco-Prussian War in 1871, the Paris Commune, they voted, a committee voted to topple the Vendome Column, and it was quickly rebuilt. Um, And the statue of Napoleon was changed out. Uh, Originally, his statue at the top of this column, uh, he was presented as a Roman emperor wearing a laurel wreath and a toga, and they changed that out, uh, his dress. But uh, there have been changes, and even the the Arc de Triomphe became, after World War I, part of the commemoration of the the war dead with the, the tomb of the unknown soldier and the fire that was recently extinguished during the protest. And uh, there have been changes to his monuments over the last couple of centuries. But I think he did leave um, quite a legacy. Why do you think his legend persists? His brand, it's topical in 2018. What's, what's up with that? It's fascinating because, you know, he's exiled after his defeat at Waterloo. The British, well, they first exiled him to Elba and he escaped and staged a comeback called the 100 Days. And then after Waterloo, he's exiled to St. Helena without any soldiers and it's very remote and there's no chance of escape. And so he's there for over five years before he dies in 1821. And after his death, there is a real Napoleonic cult. And uh, the Bourbon, the restored Bourbon kings, uh, that's Louis XVIII and Charles X, they try to really erase his memory as the ancient Egyptians did and the ancient Romans did. And they were unsuccessful. They, uh, there was just such a strong following. Napoleon had um, great charisma. I mean, like Julius Caesar, he was beloved by his soldiers. And he represented a, a period where France was dominant uh, and powerful. So that cult persisted. And in 1840, in December 1840, actually December 15th, 1840, his his remains were repatriated to France and he was buried in Paris at the church at Les Invalides. That is still a magnet for people um, to visit today. And it's an incredibly powerful place in a circular underneath the dome of this church, um, and his sarcophagus is is quite dramatic. It's in a red a stone made to look like porphyry, which was the prized stone of uh, ancient Egypt that the Roman emperors prized. And today, I think that you have both sides. I mean, I think in France, uh, his reputation, it's somewhat conflicted. I think the French, um, it goes through different periods right now. Um, he's not very popular at this particular moment, but he has been and he probably will be again in the future Um, because he represents, like I said, a certain time when France was all-powerful. Well said. Where does he rank amongst other historical leaders when gauged by scope and longevity? Oh, that's a very interesting question because in terms of, I'll start with longevity, you know, his reign is really just 15 years, so relatively short. The scope, I mean, he he controlled most of continental Europe, of course, um, and he would place his siblings as puppet rulers in these satellite kingdoms, and he really, in that way, he could control uh, them. Uh, you know, this is very interesting to me because... In researching the book, I learned that Adolf Hitler, when he occupied France, 
1940, he visited Paris and he visited Napoleon's tomb. And he was very much an admirer of Napoleon. Napoleon was a strong man. He, let's face it, he was a dictator. He's been compared to Julius Caesar. And, you know, Caesar was assassinated because he was a dictator. Uh, and Winston Churchill said that Napoleon was the greatest figure of uh, action since Julius Caesar. Okay. And the two have been compared both by supporters and detractors. And there are many similarities between the two. But I find very interestingly that both of them, uh, they spent very little time in their capital cities. Julius Caesar was spent very little time in Rome, and Napoleon amazingly spent little time in Paris. Um, both men were out fighting. That was an amazing fact I read in the book. Uh, two years, I think, is it in total? Yes. It's incredible when you think that he was, Napoleon was really issuing orders from the battlefield, and he was he got a lot done. He was quite a um, multitasker, like Julius Caesar, and he was able to weigh in on uh, the materials that were being used for the, uh, for instance, for the Arc de Triomphe. He wanted French stone. It was very important that French stone be used for the Arc de Triomphe. Um, so he's issuing orders, but not from within Paris. He is he's out fighting with his army. What's considered his most recognized portrait, and who painted it? Do you know that off the top of your head? Yes. Um, so there are several very famous portraits of Napoleon. Well, it's a very interesting question because when he proclaims himself emperor, his iconography becomes more classical. So painters, uh, sculptors, they start portraying Napoleon as a Caesar figure, wearing a laurel wreath in, on his head, uh, wearing a Roman toga. So uh, I would say... Well, one of the most famous portraits of Napoleon uh, was early on by a French neoclassical painter, Jacques-Louis David, and it's uh, Napoleon crossing the St. Bernard Pass. Uh, It was painted around 1802. It shows Napoleon riding a white horse. He's rearing on his hind legs, and it's very dramatic, and Napoleon's leading his um, his men across this very treacherous pass um, to get to northern Italy. But fascinatingly, by the horse's legs, there are stones, and David added the inscription to, besides Bonaparte, he added Hannibal, uh, Hannibal, who crossed the same pass during the Punic Wars, and also uh, Charlemagne's name. And Charlemagne was the the ruler of during the Middle Ages who also unifies Europe. And Napoleon uh, greatly admired what he did. He was the first Holy Roman Emperor. So uh, I find I think that's one of the more famous depictions. I finish all the interviews on book stories with a quick lightning round. So it can be one-word answers, or you can you can expound at length if you'd like. Um, what are you reading right now? I just came back from Patagonia, from Chile and Argentina. Um, I just finished a book about uh, Darwin in Tierra del Fuego, and um, starting another book about Magellan. So I'm um, just fascinated with the exploration of that area by Europeans and the history of the area. How do you decide what to read? What are some of your filters? Oh, well, I love to read um, biographies of artists, and um, I enjoy books that are art-related. So those are books that I normally um, gravitate towards. Um, 
there are so many books that are on my reading list right now that, frankly, I have trouble deciding what to read first. But um, right now, having been so inspired by uh, Patagonia, I'm really interested to uh, learn more about that particular area. What are one or two of your favorite bookstores? Can you say that without getting in trouble? <laughs> well, I just did an event, um, a kickoff event for the, um, the Caesar of Paris at Roman's Bookstore in Pasadena which um, I actually love, and I did an event there for The Empress of Art, my book about Catherine the Great. And I love that bookstore. Um, It's just a community, really. And I find it very um, uplifting and nourishing to be there. It it reminds me a bit of uh, a library because I'm just surrounded by wonderful books and by people who love books. What town did you grow up in? I actually grew up in New York and uh, came to Los Angeles when I was about 10 years old. Okay. Was there a bookstore that you went to as a kid, and is it still in business today? um, I used to go to Dutton's Bookstore. Okay. And um, unfortunately, it's not in business. And now the new Dutton's is... um, Diesel. Diesel Bookstore. And I'm actually doing an event there in January, on January 13th. I'm very excited to I know John. He's a great guy. Yes. I love that bookstore, too, because um, there was really a vacuum after Dutton's closed, and people really are hungry for that sense of community, and um, so Diesel has filled that. You're an art history expert. What artist historically has been underappreciated? Well, <laughs> that's a really interesting question because taste and art change so much. Good point. Uh, and I'm really interested in this. And so uh, with the Caesar of Paris, I got to write a, a lot. One of the main characters is Antonio Canova, who in the day, in Napoleon's day, was the most sought after, the most uh, renowned artist. Uh, and Napoleon summonsed him to uh, sculpt his portrait. And then after... Uh, Napoleon's defeated, the Pope sends a Canova to Paris to get back all the stolen art. And he um, was quite a challenge. It took him a while, but he succeeded in getting a lot of the stolen art back and a lot of the masterpieces back for the Vatican and for Rome. Um, and then having risen to that level of, of renown, after Canova died, you know, it's really interesting. His style, his uh, very neoclassical style, just drops out of favor And so there's a period where he's really not uh, popular anymore. And I think now that's starting to change again. I find the history of uh, women artists fascinating, too, because uh, they really, you can really name uh, just a handful of artists who really made a living doing their art. And you know that there were so many more, but they just never were able to uh, break through or they had to, their work was uh, not attributed to them. So I think that's a story that we're going to see unfolding now. I think people are more interested in really understanding the bigger picture of art history. Finally, how can listeners find out more about you and your work? Well, I have a website, uh, susanjakes.com, and um, it has information on this book and uh, The Empress of Art. And I also write articles. Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter, so they can follow me in, in, on those uh, social media. The book is The Caesar of Paris. Susan, thank you. You've been listening to Book Stories. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to shows. Book Stories is an alternate Thursdays production. Special thanks to Savannah Wright for production assistance. I'm Vic Singh. Thanks for listening.